The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. This week, we'll be tackling U.S. airplane maker Boeing's woes and China's latest moves to stimulate the economy. First, we'll turn to Boeing. A tragic crash in Ethiopia killing 157 people on board is the second catastrophe in six months that involves the U.S. airplane maker's 737 MAX 8 fleet. Since Monday, a growing league of nations, including the United States, grounded the aircraft. Here to talk us through the corporate and geopolitical reverberations are my colleagues. Tom Berkeley is in the studio with me in New York. Hello, Tom. Hi, Jen. And on the line from London is Ed Cropley. Hello, Ed. Hi there. Okay, so Tom, I want you to kind of set this up for us. Um, this is the second big air crash that involved this Boeing um, model and make, and um, which is kind of extraordinary. So, so tell us what's happening and, and what are some of the problems that we've kind of unearthed so far with with this with this fleet. Well, the background of this is we've really had a period of unprecedented safety in global aviation, and the attention is really focused on sort of the commercial competition between Boeing and Airbus. Okay. Uh, there hadn't been a, there hasn't been a commercial airline fatality in, in the U.S. Uh, well, for like a decade. And overseas, the record has been improving, although there are, there are accidents. What we have here, two accidents in quick succession, both of them with the newest model of Boeing's most popular plane, the 737. And uh, you know, and seemingly, the, the, what we know superficially about them, seemingly similar circumstances very shortly after takeoff, uh, seem to have difficulty with the pilots controlling the plane, clearly. Um, so that raises worries about, is, is this plane really safe to get on? And because what adds to those concerns is that uh, this is a, a new model uh, Boeing had it sort of persuaded the American regulators that it wasn't a dramatic change from previous 737s, but they did alter some of the automatic flight control software because the engines are a bit bigger in a slightly different place on the on the plane, a little more further forward, and so they were concerned about, you know, would it be as, as, as stable flying and would there be a risk of it going into a, a stall? It could be a problem, and so they cons- they inserted this software fix to actually bring the nose down. And now the concern is that may have actually worked, not not too well, but malfunctioned and actually brought both planes down. So it's it's a very unusual circumstance. Okay. So so the, the first crash with this uh, model was in October in Indonesia. In right? Indonesia, and So yes. that happened. And, you know, there was, obviously, there people were and federal authorities were trying to figure out what was going on, but there wasn't quite the same... Um, reaction that we are now seeing with this aircraft that has gone down in Ethiopia. Um, so, Ed, why don't you kind of talk us through this a little bit in terms of, you know, what is this? What are the short-term um, issues for for Boeing here? Um, I mean, and what does this mean? What's the impact for them, given the latest? Well, in the very short term, um, countries around the world, of course, led by China, um, essentially grounded these planes so they can't fly. Um, first of all, it's China, and then Ethiopia, logically, Indonesia followed suit very quickly, then Singapore. And it gradually spread to Europe, which uh, then sort of much more sort of established air markets, I suppose. Canada basically said that they were going to withdraw the airworthy certificate 
um, for these planes to fly. So now there are 370 roughly in uh, operation around the world, which means that the operators uh, will either have to put passengers on other uh, aircraft or they have to lease new aircraft, alternative aircraft, to get passengers from A to B. Now this is a cost obviously they weren't uh, planning on, on spending, and so they are likely to, to sue Boeing for compensation. Um, I don't think this is going to be a huge amount of money in, in the overall scheme of things to Boeing, even if all 370 jets are grounded and Boeing has to pay the compensation. This is, it isn't going to be more than about $500 million a month, which is you know, small change for a company that's valued at well over $200 billion. As we're speaking now, we still don't know the, the cause of the crash in Ethiopia, right? They're, they're trying to, they have recovered the black box, I believe, but it's not immediately clear what caused it or, um, you know, what happened. So to me, if, if it makes sense to ground all these planes until we have a better idea of, you know, exactly what the issue is, given that this happened six months earlier. I can certainly understand that feeling, and I would be slightly, uh, I'm not sure how I'd feel getting on, uh, if I was to get on a plane and found it was a 737 MAX 8, but it is kind of unprecedented, you know, and, and that's that's the one thing that Boeing and the FAA have fallen back on, that you, you get the data, you check and see what actually happened, you'd be sure you know what actually happened and what the fix is. Um, so they've been a little caught off guard by this by the second accident, which is sort of cemented this, you know, near panic almost around the globe, and they've been caught flat-footed. Um, I think we will know in fairly short order what the real cause was. They do have the black box in Ethiopia. They've, they've recovered it and have been spending two months studying the, uh, the Indonesian uh, black box. And Boeing and the FAA have already said that the company is going to come out uh, either later this month or next month with software fixes that they believe will uh, fix the problem or in, in, in official company and FAA speak, make an already safe plane even safer. Let's talk a little more about the geopolitical situation here, because if, if that's the case, this is sort of unprecedented that all of a sudden all these countries are grounding these planes. There's something else at play here. And um, and I'm wondering if it is sort of the United States recent um, position, I guess, on global matters, on all sorts of global matters. Um, and if this is some sort of way to retaliate against, you know, a company that's based in the United States. Um, and it, my understanding is what one of two airplane makers, basically, you can go either to Boeing or to um, Airbus, and that's pretty much your where you can go. Um, so, I mean, what's your take on this? Um, you know, there are lots of, of ways of looking at it. And Airbus is the one rival that you've mentioned. Um, and Airbus makes the A320, which is a single aisle uh, mid-range passenger jet that is the direct competitor and counterpart of the um, 737 MAX 8. Um, Airbus, Airbus's share price hasn't moved an inch, um, even though there's a possibility that you know, airlines might start thinking about alternatives. Um, the reason for that is simply that Airbus's production lines are absolutely chock-a-block, and there's no way that even if airlines want more of these planes, there's no way that Airbus can start churning them out. It's, it's not like um, you know, sort of making more chocolate biscuits or, or even automobiles. Um, so Airbus is, there's no more capacity there. So then the only other alternative out there is um, a state-owned uh, aircraft maker in China called Comac, which has a, a model called the C919, which has got roughly similar specs to, to the 737. 
And aviation and uh, aircraft manufacturing is one of President Xi Jinping's big industrial growth areas for 2025. Um, it's very cynical to assume that, that China is sort of seeing Boeing's problems or indeed an air crash in Ethiopia, which of course is a, a country with which China trades very heavily. Um, it's, it's very cynical to think that China is looking to make hay out of um, such a disaster and such a tragedy. But in the current political atmosphere, it's, it's hard not to think that this might be some, you know, some in the circles of power in Beijing might be having these thoughts. So longer term, I mean, how long do you think this is going to take to kind of iron out all the details and, and also all the issues, like what, with all these countries grounding these planes? And when will this all kind of smooth out at some point? I think probably the most likely scenario is that it's a matter of weeks or at most a couple of months. Uh, Boeing 787, the Dreamliner, was grounded shortly after its introduction back in 2013. That lasted three months. That was for a battery problem. They had this nasty thing of catching fire. Uh, but that, that was resolved. If this is purely a software issue, it's probably on the shorter end of that time frame. Uh, if, it's, if it's more complicated, um, then then perhaps it's longer. It, it would be hard to see it being beyond that. It, unless something, I guess the nightmare scenario is, it turns out that the design flaws is, is more significant, that somehow that what they did with the engines can't just be fixed with, with a minor software patch. I mean, most people in the industry don't think that's likely, um, in which case, you know, as, as Ed said, Airbus's production for A320s is booked for, you know, more than five years ahead. Boeing has orders that are already, uh, it will take them almost seven years to fulfill. It's interesting that uh, Norwegian Air, which I think this is the first carrier that operates the 737 MAX 8, said they were going to demand compensation from Boeing. Mm -hmm. But they've got orders for, they're maintaining their current orders. They're assuming that this is going to get fixed in a, a near-term time frame and they want to get compensated for the extra cost of operating an older 737 for however many weeks or months it lasts. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So, Ed, before we let you go, I mean, what, what do you think Boeing should do in this situation? If you look at the Boeing share price, um, investors are taking this very, very seriously indeed. Um, there's no way that the, the amount of compensation that um, Boeing is liable for or potentially liable for can really explain the, the full extent of of the share price slump, hmm. which is, you know, that this is getting close to the, the impact of the September 11th, 2001 attacks. So it's 26 billion of dollars of market cap has, has been removed from uh, Boeing's market value. So, so that suggests to me that there, there are some people who are, are thinking that there is a, a possibility um, that the whole 737, um, you know, production model uh, has got a, a big, big problem. Um, because even if, even if it goes on for two months, say, um, and Boeing isn't able to deliver planes to the Indian government, for instance, today said that they wouldn't take delivery of orders of new planes until the issues have been resolved. But even if it's resolved in two months or three months, Boeing ultimately gets, still gets that money um, in just albeit two or three months' time. So there isn't a major um, impact to its bottom line. Um, so the only way really to explain the major share price decline, I think, is, is, is concern among investors that there might actually be something more fundamental to the production of this very, very, very profitable and, and very well-sold uh, aircraft. I think Ed's right, and I think that makes it all the more 
um, important that Boeing should actually, instead of kind of lurking behind the FAA and taking the the the, the, the by the book stance that they've adopted so far, they need to do what other companies in the past done with crises. You know, most notably Johnson Johnson in the infamous Tylenol case decades ago. When a crisis this big, you've got to get in front of it. They should sit there and say, we're going to resolve this as quickly as possible. We're going to work with our customers and we'll pay whatever compensation is necessary. And that's the way you kind of rebuild faith. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll be following this closely and we'll have you back on the program again. So Ed, thank you for coming on. And Tom, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Pleasure. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong with Christopher Bedore chatting about the uh, gradual conclusion of the Lianghui, China's two big political meetings that happen once a year. They generally result in a big flurry of economic targets being set, um, new policies, new ideas. Uh, not a huge amount of debate given the structure of the Chinese government, but um, still a very important meeting. Chris was there. Uh, Chris, what, what came out of this year's event? Targets. We had a lot targets. of targets. Good, good. Important targets, too. Uh, so, I mean, most notably the, the growth target, the GDP growth target is the one that everybody watches. Last year it was set at around 6.5%. This year it has dropped to a range of 6 to 6.5%. So they're giving themselves a little bit more room to kind of slow the economy. Um, other important ones were, I would point to two, actually. Um, I think that tax cuts are a big one. So the goal here is almost two trillion yuan of tax cuts and fee cuts this year, especially for and companies. And China's claiming this is a world record. I mean, that this is huge. How surprising yes. was it that they went this big? I think it was a bit surprising. Yeah, I, I think everyone expected tax and fee cuts. I don't think that we expected them this big. So I mean, that that two trillion figure—that's ballpark about two percent of GDP. I mean, it's not. It's not trivial by any means. Um, again, most people have probably been expecting, if you'd, if you'd force them to guess, maybe around 1.5 or something. So, Well, and this is something a lot of uh, business leaders have been complaining about in China, that, you know, it's not it's not the credit so much the problem is like the policy hurdles, the cost of doing business for us. Well, the private sector has kind of struggled to borrow from banks anyways. Um, now that they've kind of shut down a lot of the shadow banking channels, that's closed off too. But, I mean, this is a, a, a good move, I think. Uh, what's your take? I mean, obviously, they have this debt problem they're trying to struggle through. I mean, is this a balanced approach to your view? I think they really didn't have a choice on this. I think that they, they had to cut. Now, what, did they have to cut by this much? Maybe they did kind of go above and beyond expectations a bit. But did they have to cut? Yeah, I think they did. Um, because I think what we've seen over the past, say, couple of years in particular is that um, tax receipts have been going up. Um, pretty strongly, kind of I'm broadly in line with, with growth, um, even as you get these big announcements of tax cuts. So last year it was $1.3 trillion. Obviously this year it's almost two. Um, they so the rates are going cutting. down, but collection is, is, is still is it's getting still stronger. On, on, on track, yeah. So it's kind of offsetting each other. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, there might be many explanations for that, but I, I think one of the important ones, especially that you hear kind of anecdotally, is that enforcement of a lot of charges is getting better, especially of Social Security charges, which a lot of companies didn't used to pay in the past and now are, are kind of worrying that they actually right. do have to pay the statutory rates. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, so what else came out? I mean, there, there are some of the, the trade partners have been watching this for, for signs of movement um, in terms of concessions on key parts of industrial policy, one of the big ones being forced technology transfer and IP issues. What, what happened there? Well, so we have a foreign investment law that's um, pretty widely expected to be to move forward, essentially, at this at this party Congress. 
Um, that'll probably come a little bit later than we're recording, but uh, I mean, it appears in the works. It essentially does some things that foreign companies want, um, strengthening intellectual property rights, um, addressing a lot of those concerns. But I would, I would be, I would be surprised if it really moved the needle on a lot of these foreign concerns. Right. Um, well, why not? I think it's mostly incremental at this point. I mean, this is stuff that they've been talking about for for quite a while. Um, and I mean, the, the well, the tech transfer was never like something that was. I mean, there's a lot of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge to these sorts mm-hmm. of things. Like, uh, you know, well, you don't have to tech transfer your technology, but we don't have to approve your application for, you know, this, that, or the other. Thing. I mean, it's an age-old problem in China's political system of you get them to agree on something on paper, and then whether or not that's actually you know translates into how things work in practice especially in an environment where you can't necessarily sue a government if it doesn't abide strictly by the letter of the law um i think that's always been a challenge so i think there is it's sort of a uh sort of a degree of we'll believe it when we see it i think attitude. you technically can sue the government but you can't sue the party oh you, oh, you can <laughs> if you feel like you, it. you definitely get it if you're so inclined I'm, to set your money on fire no, 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 I, I'm, yeah. I'm just saying that uh <laughs> i take your point I yeah take your point. yeah so what about made in china 2025 they didn't mention it there, there's a little a slight amount of hay being made out of you know this was this big irritant to the u.s government and other trading partners i mean the european chamber of commerce in china was complaining quite vociferously about made in china 2025 and its goals and targets for stimulating these industries software aviation being just a few of this long list and and this being seen as like oh well you know china's going to throw cheap money and and force tech transfer in these sectors and they're going to they're going to put our our sectors out of work and that wasn't mentioned in this plan does that gone now yeah so it's gone. It's totally made gone. in China. Twenty twenty five will is never dead. appear. No, I I'm more seriously. I mean, uh, yeah, we didn't see it in here. Um, I would have been shocked if we did see it. Frankly, mm-hmm. um, I think that it's such a high profile issue, and it's very clear that Beijing has tried to tone down the rhetoric on that. That um, I, I think it was it was pretty much off the table for for the work report. Does it matter that it's gone? That the word is gone? That the word is gone. That's debatable. I. Yes and no, in the sense that do the policies themselves seem to keep going? I would say a lot of them, yes. Um, but on the other hand, does removing the word, does it kind of undercut it in maybe a softer sense of like loosening the coordination between kind of how the center, the central government kind of you know, rallies ministries, local governments towards some of its its kind of desired focal points. I think maybe you could make an argument towards that. It's a little bit end. better on the margins, maybe, but yeah, it's certainly. It, but put it this way, I mean, it's better than but, if they had come out full. But, but it comes, and kept it, it saying comes back to the targets, right? I mean, like we this this began with targets, and like what Moody's and some of the other people are complaining about is like the numeric targets. So whatever the brand is, if you're telling these local governments, if you're telling. The banks, you know, that you have to hit X, Y, and Z if you have to produce this much growth, you know, lend X amount to small businesses, whatever, that that's fundamentally the source of the distortion, that you're telling the market what to do. And there wasn't a lot of sign of that that is easing off significantly, right? Look, put it this way. I mean, as far as like the broader industrial policy, I think, I mean, I sat through a lot of these speeches. They were extremely (laughs) long, very detailed, a bit, not to criticize, but a bit dry at times. And I did not see any hints that industrial policy was was going away. Well, thanks for talking. Uh, I'm sure the trading partners will be less than happy about that, but uh, we'll see what happens. 
That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Tom Berkeley, Ed Cropley, Pete Sweeney, and Chris Bedore. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.